So we're in the book of Ephesians, uh, and just as a reminder, if you have a mobile device and you have the Version Bible app, you can go into the, uh, we affectionately call it the hamburger menu, the three little lines, right, and then click events, and if you have location services on, it will immediately, uh, Mayus Road Church will pop up there because you're here, and then you can follow along in my sermon notes if, you, if that helps you. Uh, we're in Ephesians 6 today. As we come into the home stretch of the book, we've been in for 21 weeks. It's pretty good. Way to hang in there, crew. As Adolf Hitler and his appetite for power and territory grew, uh, building up to World War II, his army began to invade other countries and annex uh, Austria and just, just kind of move across the continent of Europe. And in some cases, uh, it could hardly be called a battle in the countries he went into. And as the German army would advance with its tanks and its technologically advanced weapons, some of the underdeveloped nations of Europe would come out to meet them on the battlefield with spears and even rocks. I mean, whole people groups just trying to fend off the German army with spears and rocks. It was no contest at all. It was a massacre. Uh, these, these nations were not equipped for the battle in which they suddenly found themselves. This morning, I would say that the same thing could be said of our enemy, Satan, and those whom he opposes. Many of his victims do not even know that there is a war raging all around them. They make easy prey. Christians should know that we are in the midst of a great spiritual struggle, although it seems that many in the church either don't believe it or just aren't even aware of it. And even more distressing is the fact that many who consider themselves in the war don't understand the nature of Satan's schemes or the weapons that he employs or or the weapons which God has given to his children for their protection and their defense and some of those for our offense as well. We've already seen as we study through the book of Ephesians that coming to faith in Jesus Christ is to be understood as entering into the fullness of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places back in chapter one, right? Chapter one, verse three. But it's also the commencement of a great struggle with our enemy, Satan, and his forces who are at work in the world. It's an entering into the battle. See, Satan wants to keep unbelievers from the truth. And he can use his demons to possess people who are under his influence and under his control. But in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is concerned not with Satan's dominion over the earth or his dominion over fallen mankind or what he can do in their lives. Paul's focus is on uh, Satan's war against the church and the people of God. And, and so he focuses on the weapons and the, and the armor that God's provided for us as his people. So apart from utilizing the weapons which God has provided for us, we are hopelessly underpowered. We don't have the strength in ourselves. If we don't embrace this section of text and take it into our hearts and apply it to ourselves daily, we're outmatched. We're outmatched. So let's look at Ephesians 6. Let's read verses 10 to 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." And Paul is writing this. He is in house arrest. He's chained up so that he can't walk out the door. And there's a Praetorian guard. There's a, there's, a, there's a Roman guard standing with him, probably chained to him at all times. It's told, it's told us other places in scripture that many in the house of Caesar, many among the Praetorium, that's the guards there, the royal guards, were coming to know Christ. They didn't know what they had done. They thought they had chained Paul up to silence him. They brought the evangelist into their midst. And he's just like, well, if I'm chained to you, you can't go anywhere, so I'm going to tell you the gospel. I love that attitude. It's like, you're stuck with me. <laughs> Guess what? I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. Right, and they were coming to know Christ. He was Paul was in it. He was in the war. Go back to verse ten and eleven. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's that's the clear admonition, right? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So be strong in the Lord. The primary admonition of the text, and then everything else here is a clarifying or. expounding upon this theme of being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Um, It's not about our strength. It's really, this war has nothing to do with our cleverness or human cunning. It's God's might, his wisdom, his weapons, his ways, right? And one of the ways that we are strong in his might is to put on his armor. His armor helps us to withstand the devil's schemes. Now, if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that at one point, David, when he was young, uh, he's in Saul's service and he's, he wants to go out and fight Goliath when none of the other Israelites have the, have the courage to do so. And one of the things Saul does is to try to say, well, well why, don't you, why don't you take my armor, right? Put on my armor and see if you can go out in my armor. And David tries it on and, and it just doesn't fit. It's like, it's like when the toddler puts on dad's suit jacket, right? It's just, it's just swallowing him whole and he can't move and it, it's just silly, Right? And, and you have this idea, it's like, if I try to put on God's armor, like, really, how's that going to work? But it, it's crazy because God has, like, has retrofitted it to every one of us. It, it, it's, what, what can I use as an example? I'm going to get really nerdy here. It's like, it's like Iron Man's nanotech suit, right? You guys, Marvel people in the world, MCU people, right? It just adapts to you, right? It fits you. It, he makes it to fit you. We have to put on his armor to help us withstand the devil's schemes. Um, I came across what I thought was a rather interesting story about this this week, uh, uh, detailing a class action lawsuit uh, that was aimed in in 2010. There was this company named Second Chance Body Armor. 
Um, second chance manufactures, well, maybe past tense, manufactured bulletproof vests for police officers and security personnel. And their products are used by hundreds of police departments all over the country. A really big company. And apparently several policemen have been killed in, in the line of duty, even though they were wearing the vests manufactured by this particular company. And so as they did an investigation, they ran some more field tests on several of the product. It was discovered that there was a, a very particular but crucial flaw in the design of the vests that wouldn't allow it to actually stop a bullet in most cases when fired at the vest. So apparently some rather picky quality control people got all bent out of shape due to some manufacturer for misrepresenting the quality of their product. I mean, who would imagine that? And the lawsuit alleged that the company withheld information about the vests and the defects, but that they sold them anyway. In all fairness, you kind of have to give the company its due, right? I mean, trying to maintain their image and being a caring and compassionate business uh, and participating in a voluntary replacement program for anyone who purchased a vest, um, that, that, was, that was great. Way to go. Um, so if you have a vest and you haven't been shot yet, we're willing to give you another one, right? Uh, they need a new PR person. Um, along with the replacement program, the company has uh, had on its website an apology for any, quote, inconvenience that the faulty vest, vest may have caused anyone. Um, so anyway, the, the, the attorney general spearheaded a class action lawsuit. They lost. Um, they filed bankruptcy. And when you hear a story like that, it just bothers you deep down. It bothers you deep down because it's something so incredibly important. Uh, what margin of error in something like that product is acceptable, right? And, and the thought of someone being careless or more concerned about money and, and, the, and the company's reputation than the safety of the people wearing their product, it just frustrates us, especially when it's police officers who put themselves in the line of duty every day. And, and when you've got somebody shooting back at you, you want to know that the armor that you're wearing is reliable, that it's going to stop the, that bullet, it's going to stop that uh, projectile from penetrating and killing you. And as we look at the armor of God, there's one thing that we can be totally assured of. God's armor holds up in the heat of battle. It, it, it doesn't have any defects. It's always going to work. It's perfect in every way. And so verse 12 is a clarification. Again, look at verse 12. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. You, you can't approach the Christian life with a fleshly mindset. You can't go into the battle of your day with an earthly mindset. You have to renew your mind because our battle's not against flesh and blood. Now, that person that you work with that irritates the snot out of you, you, you may be tempted to think that that's them and that you have to deal with them. And, and there is some interpersonal stuff happening, but you need to be a person of prayer. You need to get, ask God to give you eyes to see beyond what your eyes can see. Right? Say, Lord, show me what's really happening here in the spiritual realm. How do I pray through this? Our war is not against flesh and blood, not against people. And it's not waged in the flesh, in our flesh. It's waged in the spirit. And the weapons of this world are not effective for combating our true enemy. For most of us, though, the situation is far worse than we realize. Maybe for some of you this morning, this is revelatory. 
You've just never delved into this part of the Christian life. It's kind of creepy. Maybe you read a Frank Peretti book when you were in your teens, and you're like, I just don't want to, no, weird, nightmares, no, thank you. I don't want to deal with the reality that all around us right now, in, in the invisible realm, there are beings that I can't see who are stronger than we are. And some of them are benevolent and serve the living God, and some of them are malevolent and are are just bent on our destruction. I don't want to deal with that reality, right? But it's, it's worse than you realize. A man went to his doctor. He was having severe headaches. The doctor ran some tests. A few hours later, called the man back to his office, and he said, I have terrible news for you. Your condition is terminal. And the man cried, that's terrible. How long do I have? And the doctor said, 10. 10 what? 10 days? 10 months? 10, 10 what? Nine. Eight. It's worse than you know. It's worse than you know. This is this is this situation is worse than you realize. See, most of us go through our day-to-day routine with very little awareness of the spiritual realm around us. We're like Elisha's servant. If you if you're familiar with the story in scripture, and the and the, the uh, king of a foreign country kept uh, having all these problems because he wanted to make war with Israel, make war on the people of God. And every time he would set a trap or try to stage an invasion, God would just tell Elisha and Elisha would tell the king. And and it never worked. It would just never work. And so he's just frustrated. He's got all his advice. He said, what are we going to do? He says, what you whisper in your bedroom, Elisha, the servant knows hundreds of miles away. And so the king says, well, go get him and bring him back here so he can't continue to thwart our plans. And so he sends a whole army to the town where Elisha lives. And Elisha's servant gets up one morning, goes outside, and, and there are chariots. And there, there's an army camped around this town, this village. And he's freaked out. And he goes back inside and he wakes up, get up, get up, get up. There's, a, there's an army here. What are we going to do? And he's panic-stricken. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes. God opened his eyes and they step back outside and the hills, the tops of the hills are flaming chariots in every direction. The army of the Lord was there to protect Elisha and his servant, but you couldn't see it in the flesh. You couldn't see it in the physical and God had to open his eyes to see the reality that was all around them. And Elisha's servant, it's like, oh man, actually that's more terrifying than the army that came to get us, right? That's, that's the scary thing. That's the power is in the spirit realm, in, in the angelic realm. We're, we're like the guy who went to the doctor who had no idea what was going on in the unseen, right? We, we don't know. The situation's so much worse than many of us realize. So let's just run down really quickly our enemy, some truths about our enemy to, to get it in our heads, okay? Our enemy's real, Our enemy is real. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus himself said, the thief, our enemy, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus contrasts that and says, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly, right? But he's acknowledging that we have a real enemy. Satan is a real entity, a real personage, and he is bent on stealing your joy, killing all hope in you. He he would love to actually probably kill you and destroy your family and destroy any good that you've uh, been a part of in in this life. And he's bent on that. We get a little bit of Satan's backstory in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I'll give you a couple of excerpts here. I won't read the whole long lengthy sections, but in Isaiah 14, um, the, the lament goes, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, because you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Isn't this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? Ezekiel has a very parallel passage in Ezekiel 28, 12 to 17. This particular lament goes uh, like this, as you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, those were prepared for you. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Key phrase. Until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you are filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, in the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings and they feast their eyes on you. Both of those laments in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are laments that uh, God is telling those respected prophets, sing this over this person. Sing this to the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. But we know that these things are not indicative of the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was not in the garden of God walking among the stones of fire in Eden before that fell, right? And so the song that's being sung, and this is a hang-up for some, some theologians, uh, is, is, is a song that's about somebody else, but it's being sung over these earthly kings because they're walking in the same path that Lucifer walked. They're swelled up with pride, and so, the, so he tells the prophet, sing this over, sing this lament over the king of Tyre, right? Our enemy is a real enemy. We've got to get that first. That's number one. He's real. He's real. He's not some... Uh, some story that somebody invented to scare children to keep them in line. He's real. And our enemy is cunning. Our enemy is cunning. There is not a human being in all of human history or alive today that knows the word of God better than Lucifer. I don't care how many years you were in Awana and how many badges you got and how much you memorize. He knows it better than you do. He knows it better. He is cunning, and, and, and he's so, what's the word? All the words that I thought of to describe him are not appropriate for church. He's, he's so um, just full of himself that he would even try to use the very word of God to tempt the very son of God. Do you remember this episode, right? Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, fasting. Who's ever gone without food for 40 days and nights? No, me neither. Okay. I didn't think so. That, that, that alone, you're exhausted, right? You're weak. You feel the, the weight of your own humanity and your need for things like food. And you just, oh man, if I could just 
get some relief. And then in that moment, 40 days of testing, here comes Satan, and he begins to use God's very word to try to tempt the Son of God. That is just audacious. That's a good word, audacious. Not the one I was thinking of. But that's cunning. That's cunning. He is sly, and he's subtle. If a full frontal assault on your life will not work because you'll see it coming, he'll come at you sideways. He'll slide up next to you and put his arm around you and say, man, how are you doing today? What do you need? What's missing in your life right now? How can I help you? He is cunning. He's powerful. He's also powerful. He's he's more powerful than any of us. He's more powerful than any human being, but he's not more powerful than God. Please hear me. Satan is a created being. What did the Ezekiel text say? I created you in perfection and beauty. Right? Don't, don't get in your mind this uh, Star Wars, the force, bringing balance to the force idea about God and Satan, or this, this very Eastern yin and yang idea that they're two equal powers, co-equal, trying to find balance and bring balance to the universe. That is not the Christian idea of God and Satan. Satan is a created being who is in rebellion against his creator, and he's not more powerful than God. So God's strategy, because Satan is more powerful than us, God says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll just put me in you. (laughs) I'll put the Holy Spirit in you. And so that's what we read in the text of Scripture. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He's talking about the Spirit of God in us. So because we're weaker than Satan, God says, well, I'll just put some Holy Spirit in you. I'll put the Spirit in you, and then that that won't be a problem anymore, okay? So he's... He's real, he's cunning, he's powerful, and then here's, here's our fourth one. He is defeated. He is a defeated foe. Listen to the words of Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him up for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And I'll skip down to verse seven, same chapter. It says, and when the thousand years were ended... Satan is released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed those armies. And the devil who had deceived them was then thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And you go, well, that hasn't happened yet. Satan's still at work in the world. Yes, we know, but that is a future event that is a sure event. It's done. Satan is defeated. He knows that his end is coming. He knows that he's a defeated foe. His fate is sealed. His defeat is sure. And the cross of Jesus Christ was this master stroke. The enemy thought that he uh, was doing his best work in destroying the Son of God, and he had no idea that he was fulfilling God's design and sealing his own doom. Sealing his own doom. And despite that, despite the fact that he's a defeated foe, he knows that his time on earth is very short and limited. And and like a cornered animal, you should expect his ferocity uh, to increase and for him to attempt much harm while he is able still. As these days that we live in grow darker and darker and darker, and I'm not talking about the weather in western Washington and the tilt of the axis of the earth, I'm talking about the culture and the spirit of the age. As it grows darker, you should expect the ferocity to go up. 
He knows that his time is limited. He's real, he's cunning, he's powerful, but he's defeated. He's a defeated foe. And then verses 13 to 18 here in the text of Ephesians 6. This is all expounding on that admonition. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. How do we do that? We put on the armor of God. See, this is a call to war. If if you suddenly step off a bus one day and you find yourself in a situation where someone really gruff is shouting in your face and handing you a uniform and weapons and telling you where to go, it's not so you can dress up and look pretty. It means you're at war, (laughs) You're being trained for war, right? It's to equip you to make war. And this is precisely what the Spirit of God is doing through Paul. He's handing us our gear and telling us to get in the right mindset so that we can step into the battle that's already raging all around us all day, every day, that we're just unaware of. You stepped off the bus. When you said yes to Jesus, you stepped off the bus to basic training. And now you've been handed your armor, handed a sword, and he's going to teach you how to use it. So put on the whole armor of God. Failure to put on any piece of the armor of God results in vulnerability on the battlefield. So put on the full armor of God. Let's walk through it really quickly. Belt of truth. Um, think more, less like a belt, like a thin belt that you wear to hold up your jeans and more like a girdle. Some of you men are offended that I would say that you need a girdle. So think about a girdle encircling the waist. It serves to stabilize your body and protect your midsection because it's probably buffeted with leather, right? And to provide the soldier with a place to restrain his garments. You don't want a lot of frilly stuff uh, catching as you're trying to move around the battlefield, right? So it restrains the garments that your movements in the heat of the battle will be unhindered. And, and think about it this way. Um, we talk about the garments on the battlefield, your feelings, right? Flailing around wildly, but the, but the belt of truth has a measured response. Keeps things close, keeps things close, right? Helps keep things tight, the belt of truth. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is a piece of body armor that was worn to protect the vital tender areas of the body. Um, right up in here in the front, if you, if you know this about... Um, other animals, like we, we, we're, we're really one of the only animals that walks upright and exposes our most vulnerable parts to each other, uh, our, especially our midsection here. The dogs and all other animals that go on all fours, that's why if they roll over, they're exposed, they're, they're showing submission because they're opening themselves up to being hurt, right? This is where all the, it's easy to get to your internal organs here because there's no, the ribs are here, right? And, and here. And so this part's easy to access and, and hurt somebody. And so this is, this, this is what the breastplate of righteousness does is it protects all the tender areas of the body, specifically the heart here. And so, um, it's the breastplate of righteousness. So the contrast here is that self-righteousness will puff the heart up, right? But Christ's righteousness protects our hearts, keeps our hearts humble. And we need that on the battlefield. We need protection and we need humility. And so we put on the breastplate of righteousness. He says, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Um, you may not know that Roman soldiers wore sandals that had nails driven through the bottom of the sandals um, so that they would have the surest footing on the battlefield. It was kind of the precursor to cleats. 
right? Um, except they were, you could also use them as a weapon. But you would have very sure footing on the battlefield, and you didn't have to worry about slipping in the heat of battle. And so you were always well-grounded. And so this is the idea of being well-grounded in the things of God. We should be sure of our conversion and our faith in Jesus and the fundamentals of our faith in Jesus. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we're on solid foundation when the battle's raging all around us. We put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and then he says, take up the shield of faith, not a little round buckler. Do you know what a buckler is? It's a small shield about 18 to 24 inches in diameter. Uh, that's not what this is. This is like a door with a, with a place for your arm to go in the back, right? It's about as tall as me, six foot by about uh, three to three and a half feet wide, a little curvature to it. And it's usually wrapped in leather. And then what they would do is they would soak that shield in water before they went out, make it a whole lot heavier, but it would also serve when all those flaming arrows came at you and they hit the shield, it would extinguish them so that your shield didn't catch fire or you didn't catch fire. Those are both bad things to happen on the battlefield. Just FYI, you don't want to catch fire in the middle of a battle. That's news to some of you, right? And you're like, okay, I'll write that down. So, So the shield of faith quenches the missiles or the darts of the enemy. And our shield is faith. It's a shield that's able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. It's a shield that has to be well soaked in the water of the word. We, got, we can't just have blind faith. It's got to be informed by the word of God, informed by the word of God. And then he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Helmet was given to a Roman soldier to protect his brain. Regardless of how well the rest of the soldier was protected, a blow to the brain renders the soldier ineffective. It controls everything, right? So the helmet's given to the soldier to protect the brain. Re- regardless of regardless of whatever else he's got going on, that's a pretty essential piece. Our minds need to be uh, focused on Jesus and who he is. Our, our, our thinking needs to be filtered through the grid of God's word. We've got, to, we've got to work to develop a Christian mindset and a worldview through which every other thought would pass for us as followers of Christ. And then last, last two, he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which would have been a short, straight, uh, double-edged Roman uh, sword, very effective in hand-to-hand combat and was essential to the survival of the soldier. And we're, we're told uh, in Hebrews that the sword of the spirit is the word of God and it enables us to conquer in every battle that we face. It's essential for every Christian soldier to be proficient in the use of their weapon. Well, how do I get proficient? You study it. You study it and you memorize it and you put it to use. How do I put the word of God to use? Well, two ways. Can I give you two ways? Obey it. <laughs> that would be what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll, you'll do what I said. And then two, talk to people about it. Talk to people, share the gospel. I want to just tell you that um, the times I have had the most nearness to God's spirit in the, in the sense that, not audibly necessary, but but experiencing God putting words in my mouth, putting thoughts in my mind was when I have shared the gospel with other people. And I'm like, where did that come from? Man, I don't, I don't remember memorizing that verse, but it just, it just came out of me. And it was so appropriate to the situation in that moment. When we, when we put into practice the word of God, there's a, I think it's Philemon, uh, one of the verses in Philemon, that one chapter, I think it's verse three, says, I pray you be faithful in the sharing of your faith that you may know the fullness of the nearness of Jesus, right? 
And so there's a nearness in that. Sword of the Spirit, close combat. And then most people don't acknowledge this last one, but there's another weapon here. It's prayer. It's prayer. And can I just tell you, in my, uh, my suit up locker room, every, everything I put on, like that's the one I have the hardest time taking up. Everything else I feel good about, I like wearing that helmet, put it on. You know, the prayer is the hardest thing for me, uh, even as a pastor. But think about it like this. This is helping me this week. An advantage that we have is the ability to be in direct communication with our commanding officer at all times. Think about that on the battlefield. You could be in direct communication with your commanding officer at all times. This has always been a problem on the battlefield. But in the spirit realm, the problem is solved. The greatest offensive weapon we have is the ability to call upon the Lord our God when we're in the thick of the battle. And and he's able to communicate his orders on the spot and give clarity. and, and, And we can implement immediately, which gives us a decided advantage over our enemy. Think about what that would do in modern warfare. If, the, if, the, if whoever's watching this battle had the, the ability to communicate directly with every soldier instantaneously all at once, that'd be amazing. That's what we have in prayer. And prayer is this crazy weapon, too. We start to pray for other people. Um, like we're just getting into the age of weaponry where we have smart bullets and things that can uh, go through walls or see through, or weapons that can see into a house and see, and, and, and projectiles that will go around and come back to people and just crazy stuff, right? But we have a weapon that no wall can stop, no person can hide from. We can pray for someone and there's absolutely nothing they can do to stop it. Did you just think about that? There's nothing they can do to stop it. Our enemy can't oppose prayer. You could be captured, tortured, horrible things done to you. Have your tongue removed. You can pray. You have a weapon. And I just say that with with a strong sense of conviction because it's not a weapon that I wield as frequently as I ought to and I'm not as proficient at it as I ought to be. But the point of all of this, all of this is that we are to make war. This call is to every man, woman, boy, and girl who's, who's naming the name of Jesus, calling upon him as Lord and Savior. You were born into a world that's at war. So let me just give you some handholds as we summarize the text and apply it. The war is real. There's a real war raging all around us and you are in a battle. You may not feel like it. You may not totally be on board with the idea, but it's true, right? We already said John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of Satan's main goals is to keep you from the life that Jesus has called you to in obedience and the fullness of life that Jesus offers. So think about, think about this. Think about the timing of your life and where you are today. Um, you have been placed where you are by Jesus. It's why, it's why we end every service with that admonition. Some of you love it and some of you are like, he's gonna say it again. Do what you're good at for the glory of God right where you're at for the mission of God, right? We talk about that because God has put you right where you are. His, in his goodness, he's put you right where you are. You were not born into the dark ages of Europe. You were not put by God in 12th century feudal China. You were put here, Now, at the closing of, maybe that's too much to say, at at the the crumbling of Western civilization, (laughs) maybe, probably, secular humanism, the naturalistic worldview says you're an accident. 
Your time plus chance plus chaos equals you. You, my friend, are lucky mud. And I say, no, I reject that wholeheartedly. You're not lucky mud. You were, you were made in the image of God and you were put here by God right now in this culture for his purposes to be used in the battle that's raging right now. We live in a world that's at war, even though we tend not to live like it. And we have a real enemy who is opposing us actively. And so expect ambushes and then don't blame Jesus for them, right? You have a real enemy who is opposing us and then we get attacked and ambushed and we go, why are you doing this to me, Jesus? It's like, you're in a battle. You're at war. See clearly the problem when we face our enemies is we forget who we are in Christ Jesus and who Christ Jesus is in us. That's why 1 John 4, 4, I'll say it again. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And so this battle is a spiritual battle. So we wage war in the spirit. Paul would say, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, though we walk in the flesh, I'm alive in this body, Right? Uh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but actually have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Your weapons are not carnal weapons. They're spiritual weapons. And you are currently, at this moment, in a real war. So uh, First Peter, Peter would say in chapter 5, be sober in your spirit and be alert. Right? If you're in the middle of a battle and, and, and things are kind of like the, the crossfire is dying down and you're in a trench or you're in a foxhole and you kind of lull yourself into a place of false security, say, you know what? I just really like to go for a leisurely stroll right now out in the middle of this. I'm going to just crawl out of this hole and just walk around. Hey, guys. Hey, how you guys doing? You're going to get shot, right? So, so Peter says, be of sober spirit and be on alert. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren all around the world. Peter's saying, learn the art of war. Forget Sun Tzu. Go to the Bible. You don't need some dead Japanese samurai to tell you how to fight. You need the word of God. You need the word of God. We must learn the art of war God's way. And so here's what I say in summary today as we, as we wrap this up. There are no conscientious objectors in this war. There's no one who says, I just really don't believe that this is an important conflict and so I'm gonna sit out on the sidelines. There's, it's not an option. It's not an option for anybody. There are captives who are taken captive by the enemy who are in bondage to sin and enslaved. Those are the people we want to set free by the grace of God. There are enemy combatants, there are actually some in the world, who have willfully chosen the side of Satan. Crazy as that sounds to us, it's true. And then there are soldiers. There are soldiers who, whose job it is to fight and bring freedom and liberation to those who are being held captive. And my question this morning is, which one are you? Which one are you? Quit playing defense and go on the offense. I, I don't know about you. I, if I had to be in a fight and somebody was going to come up and I knew I just had to take the first four or five punches, I would hate that. So your role in this fight is just to be 
a punching bag. That would be terrible. Don't, don't just play defense. Go on the offense. Jesus said that when it comes to his church, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You know, for years, as a, as a teenager and as a young adult growing up, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, man, we're just gonna, we're gonna huddle up together and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Like the gates are some kind of mobile thing that moves. Gates are a fortified position. They don't move. You know what Jesus is saying? He's not saying when the church, when, when, the, when the enemy comes and attacks the church because the church is big fortified position that, that they're gonna break upon it like water upon rock and that the church will be fine. That's not what he's saying. He said, when the church is on the offensive and goes after the enemy, the gates of hell will not prevail. That's a fortified, stationary position. That means we're on the offense. We're on the offense. So let's take it to him. Let's take it to him. Amen? All right, I'm gonna pray for us. Lord Jesus, right now, in your name we come to you. It's a lot to take in this morning, a lot to think about, but you are good and you are gracious and I pray that every heart here would just grab onto one truth this morning. One thing that you've said to each one of us as you apply your truth to our hearts and that we take that one thing with us into the rest of our day and into our week and that you would train our hands for battles. David prayed, Lord, uh, my, my, my hands can bend a bow of bronze. I am strong by your strength, Lord. Can leap over a wall. I can uh, all the things that he was able to do in the power of the Spirit. We we want those things not in the physical realm, but in the Spirit to make war against our enemy and to prevail as your church. God, give us wisdom, give us clarity, and apply these things to us in Jesus' name. We ask, Amen.